Thanks for tuning in to the Movement is Life podcast, a show bringing you raw conversation, tips, and engaging topics hosted by yours truly, Mike Fox. Join me in the dialogue on all things creative, entrepreneurial, and unconventional with stories that may just change your life. Subscribe to hear new episodes every other week, each filled with reasons to listen closer next time. What's going on, everyone? Back with another episode of the Movement is Life podcast. You know, thanks so much for tuning in, continuing to listen. I know a lot's going on right now, so your attention can be focused in a lot of different places. So I really appreciate that you at least take the time out to listen to me. I hope the topics have been resonating at least a little bit in some ways. Everything that revolves around creative life and entrepreneurship and living in a society where you know, ideologies, things like that. A lot of things need to change. And as we can see in the modern world, they are changing. So let's continue to provide to that change. Even while the pandemic is going on, let's try to do the most that we can. Um, You know, this episode is going to be a really great one. We're having special guests. He's actually been on the show before and we had a really great dialogue. It's actually one of the most played episodes so far. You know, it's just going to be great. You know, a lot of people have really tuned in and liked his story and his journey. He's very articulate. And at the same time, he's very creative too. So with that being said, you know, I want to introduce my next guest, Daniel DiArco. So Daniel is a photographer, digital storyteller, and creative director from Los Angeles. He has been a photographer, filmmaker for over a decade and has worked with a large number of corporate brands around the U.S. Daniel is continually working with teams to tell their stories of businesses that need to market their products online through content creation. In his personal life, he has an affinity for visual arts, industrial design and manufacturing, 3D CAD modeling and performing arts. He's also done work in advertising, fashion, social media, B2C and B2B industries. This wide array of disciplines has expanded his view on what it means to execute creative marketing content. It isn't just about photography or making videos. It's about how you tie everything together into story and branding. How's it going today, Daniel? Thank you again for joining another episode of the Movement is Life podcast. Hey, Mike. How's it going, man? Uh, Doing really well. I am trying to stay as positive and productive as I can be during this pandemic, uh, but doing overall pretty well. How about you? Awesome, man. Pretty much the same. Like you said, trying to stay optimistic, um, stay focused, but also stay aware because, you know, being aware is so critical right now with everything going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, because we're all pretty much stuck at home and we're all plugged into our phones, um, I would say in my own personal uh, experience, this seems like the optimal time where everyone's noticing what's happening on social media, what's happening in the news, what's happening on the internet in general. Everyone's just noticing stuff that they never noticed before. Absolutely. Awesome, man. So when and where did your professional journey start? I want to go ahead and dive right into it. Okay. I would say my journey started in 2012, early 2012. Um, I guess if people wanted to know the full story, uh, they could listen to the first interview that we did because I go more in depth into it. But essentially, I went through a very close near-death experience. And after, after that near-death experience where I was basically almost paralyzed and, and quadriplegic for life, uh, I started questioning my, my lifestyle and what I wanted to do, my future, everything. And I started uh, getting really invested into, um, I guess, like creative endeavors. So I, I asked myself, you know, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? 
uh, I want to do something fulfilling that's very creative. Because uh, I had a creative spirit. I was always building and creating and drawing and sketching and whatnot when I was a kid. And so I, I looked to photography and filmmaking. And I would say I, I didn't really get super into it until maybe 2013. So I spent a year or two just kind of training myself, educating myself on studio lighting, camera work, cinematography, um, everything that I could. Because back then in 2011, 12, 13, we didn't have as many resources as we do now. Like there weren't too many tutorials that were on YouTube compared to now. Um, right. So I, I just... I just dug really deep into that Pandora's box of, you know, forums and whatever YouTube content was out there. And I just educated myself. And by 2014, when I was still working at a full-time, you know, corporate job, I was a production artist. Um, it was in Pleasanton, California. I was living in Vallejo, California, which is actually uh, where I was raised. And it's kind of close to San Francisco. It's, it's still in the Bay Area. And I, I opened my own little photography studio. And I, I lived and worked in there. It was a 1,400-square-foot studio. And it was, uh, I think it might have been actually 1,200 or 1,300 square foot. But it was quite big for, you know, my first place to be working in. Um, That's gorgeous, Yeah, gorgeous, uh, giant. Um, I think it was something like 14-foot-tall ceilings, uh, three seven-foot-tall windows, giant, you know, a lot of natural light. Two, I think it was something like, two six by six uh skylights <laughs> amazing amazing natural light studio and i i had a lot of uh work that i did in there but the thing is i wish that i had that kind of place from back then now uh, because now i feel that um, i have more focus i have more uh, tools at my disposal i have more ability to to do what i want to be doing and back then i was kind of still learning but I was working in there, and so that's essentially where it started until 2015 when I moved to Los Angeles, and I, I further grew my career when I moved there. Amazing. Amazing. And, you know, as far as that transition from, you know, just getting your photography studio from working at the full-time job, how was that transition for you? Ooh, it was tough. When they, when they say that it's hard to balance your your love and your passion with uh, your duties it's it's real. I would say that maybe fifty percent, if not more, of my income was going straight to that rent, you know, straight to that lease. So I was working tirelessly, uh, about forty plus hours a week. And the the place that I drove to for work, um, the corporate office, it was about an hour to an hour and a half drive away. So it was about forty miles, and the San Francisco Bay Area traffic is really bad. Um, Back then it was bad. Right now it's worse because Silicon Valley, which is you know adjacent to San Francisco, uh, it's it's gotten much more dense in population now. Um, mm -hmm. A lot more gentrification, a lot more startups, a lot more multi-billion-dollar, multi-million-dollar companies. So a lot of it contributed to uh, my drive. So I would say that when I was working there, I would wake up at probably six a.m. Uh, 6.30 a.m., I would drive for an hour, hour and a half, get to the office. I would probably leave uh, 3.30 or 4. I would come back home, and I would try to send as many emails out as I could before 5 p.m. <laughs> and that was my life. Uh, and if I wasn't <laughs> sending emails at, at 4 p.m. right when I got home when I wanted to take a nap so bad, I sent emails on my lunch break while I was at work. So uh, a lot of my income went to the studio, and on weekends, I just shot as much as I could. 
That's awesome. That actually like made me have a flashback of when I first moved to Los Angeles and I was working with this photography company full time uh-huh. in West Hollywood. And yeah. I was working tirelessly, you know, full time there too. And it was with photography. So obviously my passion is blended into it to where I was getting burnt out. And even though, you know, I'd be at work, I'd come home and I'm like, do I still want to like keep working on this stuff I've been working on all day? So mm-hmm. the transition is challenging, man, for sure. But um, it gets you to a place too, where it's like, okay, I got to hustle and, you know, I know what I need to do. So that it yeah. also puts you on that edge, you know? Yeah, I would, I would, I would say when I left that job, and tried to, to sustain financially. And then I moved to LA right after, which was, I would say, a pretty risky move in, in some ways. But, um, but I mean, you know how the, that is. I was still in California, so it wasn't as bad as you moving from the South to LA. But um, it, it sort of feels like you are standing on a ledge and there, there's this giant, uh, like, I would say crevice that goes down a thousand feet and you have to jump 10 feet over. And you're not quite sure if you're going to make that leap, but you know, if you want to get over there, you eventually have to jump. And it's kind of like a, a make or break situation where, uh, that, that little crevice that goes all the way down is sort of like the financial situation that you're in. Either you're going to make Mm -hmm. it over and sustain fine and you'll be able to stay afloat and then, and then keep running and, and going as far as you can, or you feel that you just drop straight down if you don't do things perfectly. Well, see, that's the thing, too, that I love that analogy because it's so true. And at the same time, it's like there's some people that are going to fall in, you know, they're going to fall head first. Yep. But mm-hmm. it's all about making sure that you're getting past it, no matter what you have oh, yeah. to do, because I mean, I almost fell in, bro, like literally because I really didn't have any financial intelligence when I moved to Los Angeles. I didn't have that much in savings. And it was a make or break moment where it's like, you really got to figure out how to hustle or you're going to go back to the same shit that you were doing before. So it's really the reality of a lot of people's dreams and their situations. It's like, you got to take that leap. And if you don't, nothing's going to change. Yeah. And sometimes you make the leap and you, you kind of make it (laughs) and you kind of don't, you you make it to the point where you're, you're hanging off, hanging off by your fingertips. And I would say that I would say that mine was more like that. I had, um, I had, despite working in a corporate office and saving up for a little while, I had to buy a new car because the one that I was currently driving uh, broke down on me. And so I had bought this used car. So some of my savings went to that. And when I left the job, it, it was essentially pretty abrupt. It was, it was a bit spontaneous because um, I think that there's this common creative problem where people who are, uh, let's just say, artistic or they have their heads in the clouds or they're a creative person and, and they want to do bigger things with their dreams or something. A lot of times you have your head so far up in the clouds that you might not be paying as much attention at your job, or you might be thinking of that passion or thing that you love so much while you're working. And that can, that can negatively impact your performance at the job. And it can negatively impact uh, how people who are at that job see you. And I would say that at my corporate job, it definitely happened to me where people were starting to see me as somebody who was, um, maybe invested in what he was doing and he was checked out and I had been there for two years and the job was great. And I did as well as I could. I never tried to slack off. I tried putting as much effort as I could into that job, but I, I think it was more like the attitude, like the, they could see in my mind, I was somewhere else. 
So uh, we all had these uh, yearly employee evaluation type things. And the, the artistic director and the creative director of my department, they, they brought me in and they said, hey, Daniel, we noticed that, you know, um, there are people who are saying this and this and, uh, you know, we think that you're doing a great job, but it just seems like you'd rather be somewhere else. <laughs> um, and I, I had mixed feelings about that where I thought, okay, well, they're basically telling me I'm a great employee, but they're concerned about maybe my mental health or, you know, what right. I want to be doing with my future. And that was the moment where I realized, oh, I got to quit <laughs> like right now, because if, if this gets to the point where I actually uh, see a drop in my performance, then it's going to be really bad. And they'll just, you know, they won't want me there at all anymore. So um, I believe it was the very next day where I put in my two weeks notice. Uh, and when I got home, after I put in my two weeks notice, I told my landlord, uh, I am planning on leaving my job, which is going to affect, you know, how I can sustain the rent at this giant studio. So I would like to uh, essentially close my lease early. And she went, oh, okay, well, I totally understand your life situation. And I think, uh, you know, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. So I, I did move to LA. I made it there, but I only had $2,500 in savings. And that was the scary part was I thought that I was going to be making it totally fine, but I had $2,500 to, uh, to live off of. And I had one main client back in the Bay Area that flew me out, uh, I would say maybe four days of the month, five days of the month. So it was, it was a lot riding on that one client. And I would say uh, maybe three, four months after I moved to Los Angeles, uh, that client and I stopped working together. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a, a geographical location type thing. You know, like it was, it was me being in LA most of the time. And sometimes they needed somebody who lived down the street. So it was, yeah, it was a struggle, you know, um, feeling like I had made it over that, that crevice. I made the jump, but I was still hanging on by my fingertips. Right. Let's be honest, dude. That's the case for almost everybody that moves to LA. It's like, it's a real struggle at first to really get your footing and figure out, you know, what areas you need to be around, what communities you need to be involved in and just how you're going to even like make your rent too. It's like, you got to figure all that stuff out. And I feel like mm -hmm. everybody goes through that process, whether it takes them, you know, a couple weeks or six months or a couple years, like you got to go through that when you transition to Los Angeles. That's a fact. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's no easy way to move to LA from out of town and being, being like a new person in town is just, it's tough because everyone's constantly moving. I would say uh, LA is a mixture of the New York city, um, you know, fast paced environment with maybe like the look of Florida. Yeah, exactly. That's why I love it though. That's why I love it though. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it's the perfect mixture of everything a creative wants, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, um, and then also the, the struggle, I would say, besides things like financial stability and getting your footing uh, correct, like reorienting yourself when you first move there. Another challenge for a lot of people who move to Los Angeles is just the fact that there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of people, a lot of Daniels, a lot of Mikes out there, a lot of people who are doing what we do. And so you, LA has a way of pushing you to the point where you really, you really shove yourself through the door instead of just putting your foot in it, you know, and, and you find creative ways to show what you do and to network and find people who do what you do. Absolutely. Um, you know, getting 
more to the creative process start of things, you know, can you yeah. explain what your creative process is? Cause I know you do a lot of different creative stuff, but um, I really want to know what that's like for you. And I'm sure the audience would definitely like to know as well. Uh, so uh, I guess for the audience to, um, to kind of clear up, maybe, maybe there's some confusion of, of what content uh, we're talking about, but I'll, I'll go specifically into the kind of content I've been creating on Instagram. Uh, just so you know, viewers can go back and watch this stuff if they want to. But uh, one of the videos I recently put out was the Icebreakers one, the one where I was, you know, using these electronics and whatnot to uh, shoot up an, an Icebreakers um, holder thing box and spin it around and, and bring it back down into fake ice. So what I saw was over the course of a month, there was a CGI ad from Icebreakers, and I I was. At first, getting a little bit annoyed because I'm like, okay, targeted ads, I get it, but I'm seeing this one constantly, like almost every other day. And what I tend to do is I will, I will look at inspiration in random things. Sometimes I go on Google and I'll just straight up type in textures and I will look through, uh, I will just sweep through a thousand different textures. And if anything pops up in my mind of like what cool videos I could, I could create through that texture, I might start drafting up a project from that. So typically my creative process is it involves me writing a small little essay about what I'm thinking, uh, because in my opinion, if you can't organize what you're thinking, it's really hard to execute what you, what you really want to do. Uh, because, uh, something can be very creative, but also it can be scattered, like scatterbrained if you're not organized. So I'll tend to write an essay about what I'm thinking. Then I'll, I'll think about what kind of message or, or, uh, end effect I want through that little essay and through that little video. And I'll just start thinking about the creative tactics and execution after that. So I would say that the, uh, the technical things, the technical aspect of getting something done, I'm not too worried about that until after I, I get the final vision set in stone. And after I get the final vision set, then I start thinking about, okay, well, do I need to uh, use my iPhone or can I get away with using my iPhone? Do I even need any equipment like a gimbal or slider or do I just need my tripod? And after that, things just kind of flow through because I'm, I'm reading through that essay about what I want to do, and it's just crystal clear. Um, and I, I go shoot it. That's awesome. I actually really, I really like that. Um, you know, step by step part of your process too. I think it's yeah. really interesting. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a really disorganized person by nature, uh, and I think that my my chaotic ways influenced me to think more methodically. Uh, so, you know, because there's, there's a thousand ways you can do stuff. Uh, if somebody asks you to do some kind of product or fashion or action shoot or something, it's really easy to go, well, well, we can use a gimbal and a slider and we can use a crane or a jib and we can use, um, some kind of, uh, red Epic camera or a red Scarlet camera and we can do this and this and this, and we can use CGI and it, it just never ends. And that's kind of the issue that I see with being a creative person, sometimes I hate being creative because of that, because there's, there's too many things that you can do. So a lot of my process involves restricting myself. And I think the essence of creativity, in my opinion, is finding ways to do things outside of convention while you have restrictions. And when you meet those restrictions and you, you say to yourself, oh, well, there is a way to do this that hasn't been done before, or we could do it this way because we're not allowed to do this. Then I think that's where you meet, uh, I guess, the imagination you're, you're seeking. 
Right. That's where you meet the creative genius. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that we're all capable of. Yeah. You know, Albert Einstein, he discovered the theory of special relativity when he was working as a young pedant clerk in a full-time job in an office. He wasn't discovering um, the theory of special relativity when he was already famous and had resources and had millions of dollars. Uh, he didn't have any fame at all. No one knew who he was. And it was after he published that paper, then, then he gained fame and he gained popularity and people started taking him seriously. So that's an, an example of him having massive restrictions uh, because his full-time job, it might have been 40 hours, it could have been 60. But uh, let's say he's working 10 hours a day and you're stuck in a patent clerk office. You know, what do you do? <laughs> you, you, you can work, but you can also let your imagination run free and, and work within those, those time frames. Absolutely. Great point. And that actually leads me into my next question, too. So I'm glad you brought that up. What do you think about the modern technologies of today that enable people to be more creative? We kind of touched on this um, during the last answer, but I think there's a lot of a lot of ways we can elaborate on this, like with lens, filters, tools, different things. You know, how do you how do you think that affects the modern world? So this, I would say, ties in really closely with what we kind of just talked about. Because uh, it all comes down to appreciation um, and resourcefulness. So let's let's kind of uh, dial it back for a quick second. Let's talk about photos, right? So yeah, uh, ten years ago, um, when I bought my first, it might have been more than ten years, but I, I bought a Canon Rebel T1i. You know, now there are probably T8i or something like who knows. What Canon's at? Let right? me let me just cut you off right there, though. Yeah. Are you Canon, Nikon, or Sony, bro? We gotta know. We okay. Gotta know. Okay. So, I <laughs> I shoot with whatever is easiest to shoot with, and whichever one has the the um, whichever one I can navigate through the most. I have never been a huge fan of Nikon, only because of the clunky design and like I got I get easily confused. So I, uh, I shot with Nikon a couple of times. I noticed that my experiences were lackluster, but I'm always open to trying it again. Um, maybe I just had bad cameras or something. But um, See, I like that answer until you started dissing on Nikon, you know, because that's what <laughs> I use. But, you know, that's a great answer from a photographer. It doesn't matter what camera yeah, or what yeah. gear you use. Yeah. It's about your vision. So I so, love your answer. Uh, I, I, will say, I will say this. If... If anybody who's a professional is put in an environment where they have to use whatever camera is given to them or whatever they have access to, you got to use it. So if um, whenever I was given a Nikon, let's say um, the the clients, they just supplied the cameras or something on set. If they gave me a Nikon, I would use it. Um, but it's just that I was familiar with Canons. But I don't own a Canon anymore. Right now I own a, a Panasonic GH5 which is a, you know, it's kind of an outdated camera. It's three years old now, which by today's standards is a little bit outdated because they're always coming out with new cameras and everything. But the way I see it is whether it's Sony, Nikon, uh, Panasonic, or Canon, whatever, all the cameras nowadays compared to 10 years ago are amazing. And if you were to bring a Sony, Nikon, whatever, back 10 years, you would no doubt get offered millions of dollars for that camera, if not if not a billion, because the tech is incredible. You know, back then, I think um, probably uh, 2008, let's just say, there were no 20 megapixel standards for magazines. 
No one Hell had no. a yeah. No one. The only only the the pros who who had that much money could buy a Canon five D who which had you know not even thirty. So um, my my can or my Canon Rebel T one I only had something like shoot I don't know fourteen or twelve megapixels something like that. Yeah, and, I think and, that's what my first camera had. Too, yeah, and like <laughs> and the video could only shoot. 720p at something like 24 fps if that it might not have even shot 24 fps who knows but um they were not great by any means compared to what we have today so yeah i would say that um whatever camera you have uh use that and for these videos lately i've been using my iphone because it's it's on me and it's an older iphone it's an iphone 8 but that's fine with me i just want to see if i can push it to that limit so, this man um, said older iPhone and iPhone 8. Man, I'm on <laughs> iPhone 7, bro. Uh, yeah, but I, I had an iPhone. I think I had an iPhone 6 for something like five years. And, um, and I felt so great. One. I, felt, I felt so great to have an iPhone 8. And now everyone's like, oh, iPhone 8's so old. And they, now they're on iPhone 11 and whatnot. But the Samsungs are really good, too. And I've been, I've been you know, pondering on if I should get that. But, um, but to get back on track, sorry, to answer your question, I would say that in terms of the technology, my thoughts on the technology being used today, uh, it all comes down to gratitude and appreciation and, and, and resourcefulness. So when back then, because I had less things, I really appreciated the tech that I had. And whatever filters I could get my hands on, even if it was a cheap one from overseas or uh, maybe it wasn't the highest quality lens, I, I used it to the best of my ability. And the, the good and bad thing about today is we have so much tech at our disposal, so many things we can buy, but people aren't really pushing it. So they're, instead, now that we have more access to, to technology and, and gear and stuff, a lot of people are just following trends and following the same presets and following the same transitions that everybody, everybody else is doing. But it's actually, like I said before, when you restrict yourself from doing certain things, and you actually maybe even restrict how much tech and, and gear you own, you really start pushing your own sense of style and creativity. And that's where you find, I think, your character comes out. So it, it, I feel that it's amazing as a time, it's an amazing time to get invested into gear. But as long as we don't rely on the gear to access our creativity, I think it's fine, which a lot of people are doing that, unfortunately. Very well said, man. I 100% agree with you. It's never been about the gear, always been about yeah. the vision. I mean, I literally used a point and shoot camera when I went to Greece. Um, and I mean, it was an underwater camera and stuff, but like, dude, I still still share images, you know, from that trip, from that point and shoot camera. Um, and it had, I think it only had like 12 megapixels or something too, but it shot in raw. So that is a game changer, yeah. but um yeah 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 man it's like it's never been about the gear it's always been about the vision and the moment in time and capturing that moment that's a big thing for me man i want to make sure yeah. that moment can live on forever yeah. when i capture it so i don't know if you have experienced this or if you have formulated a similar uh opinion about this but i will often meet people either out in the streets or through instagram or whatever and a lot of times when people this is just something like a uh, empirical um, analysis, I guess. But when people message me 
and their first question is, what camera do you use, or what gear should I buy, or they, they actually flaunt their gear, what they do have, a lot of times I will go to their portfolio or their page or their website or something, and, and more often than not, the work ends up being a little bit mediocre. Um, that's nothing against people who love gear, but my, I think you're being subtle. It's always mediocre. (laughs) Yeah. So, but, but I, I relate this to myself because I know that when I first started, I was obsessed with speed lights and monolights and strobes. And I was obsessed with which backdrop was the highest quality and which, which camera, whether it be Canon, Nikon, Sony, like actually Sony's weren't that big back then, but whichever camera had the most megapixels. So, and I was just dumping whatever cash I had into that gear. But my portfolio sucked. It was terrible. And eventually I got proficient at what I did. But I related, I relate those feelings and that analysis of my old work to uh, these people that I meet nowadays. And um, when somebody tells me that, you know, they're being held back by their gear and they're not able to create good photos with the camera they have because their light is the cheaper brand. To me, that's just a giant excuse. And that's like the green light syndrome where you think you're going to become a good photographer or filmmaker when you have that one good light. And that's just not true. Absolutely. I agree with you. I want to play off um, of what you said a little bit too, because, um, you know, I definitely felt that way at one point in time as well. Like I definitely felt like investing in gear would make me a better photographer, but I was like 19 Mm -hmm. at that point. So um, it's okay to be young and dumb per se, but it's just about <laughs> learning. So like for me, I had to learn the, the hard way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for me, I had to learn the hard way. Like I was obsessed with lenses. Like you were obsessed with lights. I was obsessed with lenses. So I yeah. remember at a point in time, I had like seven different lenses, bro. And I was just wow. trying to figure out. Um, yeah. I mean, they weren't like all expensive lenses or anything. There were some, there were like fisheye, like cheap fisheye. There were some, there was zoom. Yeah. Um, I only have one zoom, but you know what I mean? You get the point. There's seven <laughs> lenses, right? Uh-huh. And I was just trying to test out which one had the best quality rather than which one was the most interesting for perspective for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, I kind of, I've made the mistake of diving into it because of the quality of the gear rather yeah. than my vision of what to create with the gear. So that's important is having the vision of what you want to do with that gear when you have it rather than, Oh, I have the gear. Now I can create anything. It's like, no, you got to get very specific. Same thing with your goals. Be very specific with them because you can't just be like, Oh, I'm going to achieve this. You got to have a timeline. You got to have steps or that shit is not going to happen. Same thing with photography. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and like you mentioned, uh, we, we kind of have to give people the benefit of the doubt when they first start something because it's no different from the educational system, um, primarily in America. Uh, you graduate high yeah. school, you get, a, you get a diploma, and you're expected to know which university you want to go to or, or you know, community college. But generally, you have to know who you want to be when you get into and college. Taxes you know, major and you wanna, yeah, yeah. It's just these things are kind of expected of you. But in my opinion, it's almost unfair to send an 18-year-old student to college and have them pay, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on courses when they don't even know themselves yet. And I totally understand why people who are newcomers, um, photographers, filmmakers, creatives, whatever field it might be, why they will just straight up dump that cash into really expensive gear because partially I blame the companies that are marketing to that audience 
they're they're essentially profiting off of the younger generation's ignorance. But also, the younger people don't know themselves yet. They haven't really uh, found or, or had the time to experiment and figure out who they're not. And and uh, that does take time. Absolutely. Um, you know, everybody has to find themselves. I don't really want to shit on young people or anything because it's like we've all been at that. <laughs> yeah. We've all been at the point where it's, it's like we didn't know anything about what we yeah. wanted to do. So yeah. So when when everyone has that gearhead phase, and so when I meet somebody who's in that gearhead phase, um, it isn't it isn't like a condescending thing or whatever. It, it's more like I understand that they're going through a learning phase. Uh, so a lot of times, the gearhead phase is somewhat proportional to how far they've come or haven't come in their career yet. Right. You know, like you mentioned with people, you know, messaging you asking about gear and stuff, you know, I get those messages too. And what I try to do is just be transparent. I don't try to say like, you can get this camera and it's like going to create the best pictures for you. Yeah. I actually created a DSLR camera guide where it breaks down, you know, entry level cameras, Mm -hmm. professional cameras, like full format, everything like that. And lets people get perspective on getting started and also upgrading too. So you know the difference because you can't just get started with a professional camera and think, you know, you're going to know it all. So it's about getting started. And I really want to give people that guidance and that perspective of like taking the steps to do it. Yeah. Also too, I feel like it's important to guide people rather than just give them like a tool or a website link or, you know, something like that. The same thing with like the wealth distribution, you know, how they say if you give the wealth to everybody in the world, it'll end up in the same hands. It's kind of the same situation. You don't want to give people, um, you know, just the direct access. You want to help them learn for themselves so they can yeah. make the best educated decision for themselves. Yes. Yeah. So one thing I want to say is I, I, I think that YouTube has a, a huge amount of, it's just a giant repository of great information and great tutorials. And the best part is it's free. But um, part of my beef with YouTube videos, one thing that I've never liked from a lot of creators on YouTube is that they're, I understand that people want to get paid, people want to get sponsored. And when you're sponsored, sometimes you feel like you're being swayed to say certain things, even if you don't really truly believe in them. But I still have never really quite liked when people say five lenses you absolutely need when you start photography. It's things like that that I think promote more consumerism. And it's not just consumerism, it's, it's kind of like blind consumerism. And it's all, it's all for profit on the company's end. But at the expense of the young person who's trying to get their foot in the door and, and understand what they're doing. And um, when you tell someone you need this because this is just the way that you'll become a good photographer, that just adds another hoop for them to jump through. And it, it kind of adds more peer pressure for them to feel like they need to get that thing, otherwise they'll be judged. Uh, but if somebody comes to me and they ask, you know, what camera should I buy? What lens should I buy? I don't really tell them what brand. I don't really care what lenses you use. I just say, I ask them, what do you want to do? And if they can't tell me what they want to do, then I exactly. say, don't buy anything. Don't buy anything until you know what you want. Yeah. Like use your phone until you know what you want to do. If you want to shoot fashion and exactly. specifically it's like, it's, it's within fashion's beauty and cosmetics, then buy a macro lens. And whatever camera you get, doesn't matter what camera. They're all good nowadays. They're all super good. Just get a macro lens. <laughs> um, and, and that's all there is to it. I mean, you probably want to get a camera with really good skin tones. So, I mean, that, that is one aspect where I'll vouch for Canon because they have pretty good skin tones. Um, but 
I would say that's also me talking agree back. With that. Yeah, that's also me talking back from when I used Canon. So maybe maybe Nikon's as good, if not better, than Canon in terms of skin tones. Now, who knows? But um, the people who are using it, uh, they can testify about that. But um, it all depends on again going back to the vision. If you can't formulate a vision for what you want and write down, you know, actual bullet points for what you want to do, then it's really hard for me to tell you what to buy. Absolutely. That's not to say that you won't help. It's just you want to be the most help you can be by giving them some guidelines, a little yeah. advice rather than here, just buy this and it'll solve your problems because that's yeah. not going to be the case. Yeah. A lot of times misinforming somebody and misleading them um, can be a lot more detrimental than than just telling them nothing. You know, because if you right. leave it, if you leave it open ended, they can research themselves. And I encourage that. I encourage people to research uh, things that they're curious mm-hmm. about. Uh, it, it, that actually is where the hard work kind of shows where you put your time in your schedule uh, kind of tells me what your future is going to be like. Um, but in my opinion, it does depend on priorities. So in these past videos I've been doing on Instagram uh, lately, a lot of people have been asking, uh, I've been, I started a TikTok and a lot of people on TikTok, a lot of them are positive, but there's several naysayers here and there. And some people are saying, oh, he didn't actually shoot that on his iPhone. Um, and I, I, a lot of times ignore them, but a couple of people might respond saying, hello, yes, I did. I actually used an iPhone eight and with good lighting and really good editing techniques, you can get uh, pretty good results if you try it. And I don't own a gimbal. I've never owned a drone to this day. I barely even know how to operate a drone. I've only used one once. And it was my friends. And uh, the lights that I've been using for these videos are from 2013. So they're outdated LED lights. And I'm using an iPhone 8. It's not even like an iPhone 11 or whatever. So people, people actually want to believe that you need expensive gear to do really good results because it, it, it creates this barrier um, where, where it gives them less excuses uh, for not doing those things if they know you're doing it with a, with old gear and a cheap phone, right? So there are there are people right. who really want to be good, but they'd rather have the barrier of expensive gear so they can further justify that they're not doing it because of that gear. It's a it's a paradoxical situation. Absolutely. You know, I, I think we elaborated on that topic pretty well, and hopefully that yeah. helps some <laughs> beginning photographers out yeah. there or even photographers that are trying to upgrade what they do and their gear and stuff like that. Hopefully that helps. But the next question that I have is, you know, how do you feel about people reinventing themselves? Um, That's really one thing that I want to talk about because right now we're in a time of change. There's a lot of things going on. So I will start off by saying that the pandemic sucks. It is a terrible time and there is absolutely no doubting that. However, one, one thing that I've been looking to for inspiration in, in life in general is philosophy. And one that I've been looking into uh, in particular is Taoism. So it's Eastern philosophy from, from China. And a lot of it comes from like this, this place of finding balance and letting go of fears, negativity, resentment, and just embracing the moment and, and being in creative flow. A lot of it has to do with being in flow. And, uh, a lot of us experience that, you know, we, we experience creative flow when we're living in the moment when we're just focusing on a project, getting things done. We're going left and right and doing all these crazy things that we never thought we could possibly do because we're just not thinking. And I think that this is actual optimal time to find what inspires you, find your creative flow and reinvent yourself. Um, reinvention is an amazing thing. Change is scary. It's always going to be a scary thing and you're never going to be ready for it. 
But I think that change is, is an incredible thing uh, because it, it builds our character. And so if you can find just a little bit of light in your situation, um, maybe you hated your job. And it, it is unfortunate that someone might have gotten laid off from their job and that was their, their means of paying their bills. But maybe you got laid off from a job that you actually kind of hate. And maybe you can pursue something that you really want to do because you have free time now. Or maybe you're, you're working at home instead of at the office at your full-time job. Well, now you kind of know what it's like to work as a freelancer. And in a lot of ways, many people right now understand how freelancers work because we're all working from our home offices or just in our homes in general. I think it's a time of trying to enlighten yourself and expanding your horizons about the possibilities. And if you just focus on possibilities, not to sound too, you know, not to sound too spiritual about it, I guess, but it's just, uh, it's not, it doesn't have to be a woo-woo thing. If you see something that you want to do right now and you have time, and you have the energy because you're not working or because maybe you're working from home, um, then I say just go and try it. Definitely. I agree with that too. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be something that you invest your full time in or anything like that. It could just be something you start during this time and keep elevating on over time. Yeah. One, one example I could give just to kind of personalize it a little bit more is the last time we talked, I was, I was telling you about how I was doing more or trying to do more marketing and consulting work in the manufacturing tech field. So more industrial stuff, medical devices, um, you know, just manufacturing stuff. And that I thought was going to be what I would become more known for. Um, and it was my focus. But a lot of the leads that I had and I was following and I was trying to uh, send out quotes and, and proposals and everything, uh, they essentially evaporated and went away right when we went on lockdown because nobody was trying to market. Nobody was trying to uh, pick up sales calls for me. Nobody was trying to do any kind of video work or photography work because everybody was ordered to stay at home. So I thought to myself, holy crap, this is terrible. This is a, a, a terrible thing for me. And uh, I was really depressed for a couple of weeks. And eventually I thought to myself, well, maybe I was kind of dodging a bullet. What if I don't actually, what if I, I wasn't meant to be doing that? Um, so I started telling myself I'm still going to be offering that as a service, but I kind of want to try something else. And uh, what I did was I took kind of the old, the old YouTube formats that I was doing because I no longer really create YouTube videos, but I used to make you know anywhere from five to 10 minute long videos. And some of them involved me building stuff for my camera and uh, doing shoots with them. And what I did was I said, I kind of want to go back to doing videos like that, but I want to see if I can do it in a minute. And how would that go? Because I've never done that. And so it just started. I told myself, I'm going to do one small project. Uh, the, the current theme for a lot of people is staying six feet apart. It's like a international rule. You have to stay six feet apart. So I made this uh, handheld jib crane out of wood. And I put my iPhone on there and I was able to kind of retract and go up and down and change levels. And I just designed it in a couple of days. Uh, and I, I filmed like this whole project with it. So it showed everything from the building it to the final results of the footage and uh, people liked it. And I thought I would have never done a video like that if I wasn't on lockdown. So in a lot of ways, I think that being stuck at home, even though it's terrible and you get bored and everything, find ways to entertain yourself and you'll, you'll, you'll find, that you start reinventing yourself slowly just by accident, really. Great answer. 
I love that shit. That was that was a perfect answer. The next question I have for you is, you know, who inspires you to really, you know, keep everything going? Hmm. I would say in my personal life, my mom is probably my biggest inspiration because she was there since I was a kid and she never asked any questions about what I was trying to make or why I was doing it. When I, when I asked if I could go to Michael's and buy popsicle sticks, she just went there with me and bought popsicle sticks and I made little crossbows out of, you know, wood. <laughs> and, um, and when I wanted to get some kind of like little canvas or sketchbook, she never asked any questions. She just helped me get it and a toy model car and toy airplane, all that stuff and connects and Legos. It, she's always been there to help push me to my creative endeavors. And she never really questioned my mind. Um, so I would say in my personal life, she's a huge inspiration because she, she does believe in me uh, and she can be kind of hard on me sometimes, but it's a good kind of push. And, um, in, in terms of like a professional inspiration, one of my biggest is a man named Manoj Bhagarva. Uh, I don't know if I talked about him last time, but he's uh, the founder of Five Hour Energy. And I think he had a net worth of something like $40 billion. So he was on the Forbes billionaire list. And he, he gave away majority of that to, um, to research and fund inventions for our environmental studies and for the economy. So he started a company called Stage 2 Innovations. And I think they're based in Texas. And it's just a bunch of guys who are inventors, uh, tinkerers, engineers, like in this, in this warehouse. And they're finding ways to solve problems for um, pollution and water, polluted air, uh, uh, conserving energy, and generating energy for third world countries. And when I, when I watched the, the documentary, there's a really good documentary uh, called Billions and Change. And that documentary was probably the only one that I would say influenced me that heavily. Um, so he's a huge inspiration. I think just the ethics behind what he's doing is, is insane. Uh, he, isn't, he isn't all pretentious about it. He's, he's just very practical. Like, here's a problem, let's try to solve it. And let's find people who are engineers or designers and let's see if, if they can help uh, solve that problem. Uh, so one, one thing that he's done is he created sort of like a, you know those bicycle... Um, exercise things inside gyms. I don't know what they're called, but the, the yeah, cycling elliptical, maybe Yeah, elliptical. Yeah. Like the, the elliptical uh, cycling things that people see inside of gyms. So imagine an elliptical and there's a motor attached to that elliptical on the side and there's a huge flywheel and with, with the inertia and mechanical uh, energy that people put into it, they'll pedal for about 20 minutes and have 24 hours of, of uh, energy. So they can power light bulbs, they can power uh, their phones, they can power their Wi-Fi devices, whatever. And he made, he made that invention um, for third world countries like in India or Africa or wherever. And it's, it's incredible. So huge inspiration to me in terms of like technology. Yeah, that's, that's huge, man. That's impactful. I, I definitely get that too. Um, you know, professional inspiration and personal inspiration, both great answers to that. My mom definitely mm -hmm. inspires me a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. And, Can't replace you know, them. <laughs> definitely. Definitely cannot replace them. The last question that I have for you is, you know, what's something that people will be surprised to learn about Daniel DiArco? I might've said this answer in a written interview that I did with your magazine uh, a while back. But one thing that I'll say that might be surprising is that if I had the option 
to live in a time where we had none of the technology that we have now. Um, like iPhones and the, the instant gratitude of Instagram and the, the international connectivity we have uh, today and the access to that um, and social media, I'd, I'd probably choose not to have these things. If we could go back to a time like maybe the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, where these things didn't exist, I would probably enjoy that a little bit more because I'm really big on personal relationships, meeting people in person. Uh, that has to do with romance too. Like if it, It's like the, the time of love letters. Uh, and nowadays, the only letters you get in the mail are spam mail. <laughs> so I, I think that relationship building and, and meeting people in an interpersonal environment, getting to know them uh, personally, that's something I'm really fond of. And I know that one thing that contributes to us having less connection is actually access to an infinite amount of connections and endless possibilities of connections. And a lot of times people take that for granted. And so they'll be less, uh, I guess, less willing to connect with people because it's expendable. Interesting answer to end it off. But yeah, man, you know, I want to thank you again for coming on the Movement is Life podcast. It's been a great episode. Lots of insights on here. Lots of personal stories, lots of growth. And that's what it's about. You know, we're in a we're in a pretty crazy time right now. So we want to continue to grow, stay aware and, you know, stay safe, too, of course. So thanks again, Daniel. Where can people connect with you at? I appreciate it, Mike. Um, yeah, they can connect with me on social media. So uh, ironically, <laughs> after my last answer, they can find me on Instagram if they want to see the personal projects and whatnot that I'm putting out. So I mostly just put these videos out. Um, again, like I said earlier, to entertain myself and to express what I like, but, uh, Instagram is Daniel Diarco, D-E-A-R-C-O. And if they'd like to send a message, say hello, uh, leave a comment. I always try to reply to everyone that messages or comments to me. Can't always get back to them, but I do try my best. Awesome. You guys heard him. Make sure to connect and to tune into some of his videos because they're definitely worth it, bro. <laughs> I appreciate well, it. All right. I'll catch y'all next time. Thanks again for tuning into the Movement is Life podcast. And make sure to subscribe on all platforms where you can find your favorite podcasts. Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, everything. You can also connect with me on social media at the Fox Icon. I'll catch you on the next episode.